0: Now, what we want to find out is what is this about, and how do we do it to be good joggers for God? In fact, that might be a good that might be a good deal on a T-shirt, you know, joggers for God. But let's look at um, let's look at Hebrews chapter twelve. Now, some of you will remember, the last time I had the privilege of talking to you, we talked about uh, Hebrews chapter 10, the end of the chapter. We took the last few verses of the end of chapter 10 of Hebrews, and you may remember it talked about endurance. You have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise, and so on. Now, in chapter 11, you remember, the writer of the book of Hebrews gives us a series of examples of people who ran the race. And they did it to the very best of their ability, and they did it effectively. But the interesting thing is, and we looked at this briefly the last time, if you have your Bibles open there, look in chapter 11. Look at verse 13. All these died in faith without receiving the promises. They ran the race, but they didn't get to see the results. It says it again later on in that same chapter, verse 39. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. You see, The spiritual race does not always allow us to experience the results of victory, in some ways. In other ways, it does. And so we want to try and understand the difference between those two. Because in our society today, we are very success-oriented. We, we are goal-oriented, we're accomplishment-oriented, project-oriented, and we like to see the results. And we like to experience the effectiveness of the, of the results. We like to be successful. But in the spiritual race, the way we measure success is very different. These people in the book of, of Hebrews, this 11th chapter, were all successful. They all finished their course. They all demonstrated their confidence in God and followed through to the very end, but they did not. They did not receive the promise. So let's keep that in mind now as we look at these verses and try to understand them a little bit. Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, and he's referring back to this 11th chapter, all these people, it's like, it's like being in, in the pit. I mean the pit where the basketball game is played, okay, not the other pit. And, and just think of it, now there, that, that place seats, I understand, 18,000 people. And if you go there to a basketball game, it sounds like 40,000. It is the loudest place you ever heard. But now imagine. Imagine that place full. And you're standing out on the, on the, in the middle of that floor all by yourself. And they're all observing you. Now that's what he's talking about. These people, the thousands and the millions who have gone before, apparently are watching us. We have this great cloud of witnesses, and they're watching. And they're watching to see what the believers of this age are going to do. More specifically, what the believers of this city, or of Calvary Chapel, or more specifically, what you are going to do. They're observing. And so the writer of the book of Hebrews says, Because we have this huge cloud of witnesses, notice what he says, Let us also, also, because they did, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who, was, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart one of the first things that the writer tells us we've got to get rid of these hindrances encumbrances now these are not these are not necessarily sin because he says there are both encumbrances and there is sin that you've got to get rid of. Encumbrances might be things that seem to be perfectly okay, but they're holding us back. See, we live, we live in a society that encourages moral flabbiness. It really does. Our society tells us that we need all kinds of things in order to be happy. And many of us buy into it. You know, I, I heard on the, uh, on the uh, television last night on the news, they had a little section in there about tennis shoes. And the big battle to, to get the, the tennis shoe uh, market, and the two big names, of course, are which Nike and Reebok. You got it. Those two. I mean, they're working like crazy, and they had a kid on there who who said, "Man, you've got to wear the right shoes." I mean, if the, if the gal looks at you and and, you, and you've got a pair of Kmart things on, she's gonna just, you know. <laughs> She don't want anything to do with you. You've got to have Nikes or Reebok. You know, you got to be in. Well, I don't. I don't. I'm not going to argue with that. I'm, I'm only using that as an illustration of the fact that all this, all this advertising stuff that tries to persuade us that we need this, we need this. You need a new refrigerator when your old one is doing perfectly okay. You know, you need a new car or you need... It goes on and on and on. And unfortunately, we have bought into that. We, who are followers of Jesus Christ. And without realizing it, we gather around us, not just material things now. There are a lot of other kinds of encumbrances. The way you use your time can be an encumbrance. The way you... Oh, I don't want to say this because it'll sound like I'm going to say it anyway. The way you eat can be an encumbrance. I mean, there are lots of things. Every one of us, every one of us has to ask the Spirit of God to show us, what is the encumbrance in my life? You see, what the encumbrance in my life might be, may not be an encumbrance for you. You may be able to to do that or have that without it causing a problem for you. And because it's an encumbrance in my life, I cannot, I cannot judge you and say, I don't think that person should have that in their life. It's an individual thing. But each one of us has to be willing... To ask the Spirit of God to show us what are the encumbrances. What are the things that are going to hold me back? Now my friends, let me tell you from my experience. It requires one thing. And it's not popular. It requires ruthlessness. We have to be hard on ourselves. That's what the, that's what the whole concept of discipline is, isn't it? Disciplining my body, disciplining my mind, disciplining everything about me takes effort. And discipline can only happen if I am, if I am really ruthless with myself. If I start giving in and, ta- and making excuses and rationalizing here and, and doing all kinds of things, I'll never, I'll never get rid of some of these encumbrances. I've got to be ruthless. Once the Spirit of God says to me, George, that thing in your life is holding you back. You've got to get rid of it, whatever it might be. And if I'm serious about walking with God and honoring Him and pleasing Him, I have to say, All right, I'll do it. Ruthlessly. Not easily but ruthless. Discouragement, I think, can be one of those encumbrances. I was talking to somebody just today. We were having a, a little time in the Word. And, and and they admitted that they have a struggle with, with discouragement. So we discussed it. And I, I took them back here to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 where Paul is talking about his experience. Let me read these verses for you. You don't have to look them up, but just listen to what Paul is saying. He starts out the chapter with this word. He says, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. We do not get discouraged. Notice what he says just a few verses later. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the surpassing greatness of the power of God may be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted, and now notice this, this is tremendous. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. And then he ends the chapter, and he says this, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, How do we look at things that are not seen? By what? By faith. Right. We don't look at the things that are seen, but at the things that are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We do not lose heart. You know what discouragement is? Discouragement is something that happens inside of me in my attitude and response to circumstances around me. The circumstances are not the discouragement. My response to them is discouragement. You see... All our lives, God will allow us to face tests because He loves us. In chapter 12, a little later, it tells us that. And so He, He allows tests and trials and, and, and experiences that are not always easy. It's for our good. Now, I'm discouraged about finances. No, it's not finances that can discourage me. It's my response to a need. It's what I do down in my own heart. You see, God tells us that in the middle of a test or a trial, we can rejoice. Now, how do we do that? By an act of our will. Discouragement is how I feel about this circumstance. But I make a choice with my will that God is in control and nothing is going to happen to me that is outside of God's plan for my life. Do you believe that? Not very much. Listen, my friends, that is what makes the difference. That is what keeps us from discouragement. God is in control. We sang a little while ago, He reigns, He reigns. He is in control. Let me give you a verse that you might want to memorize one of these days. It's Psalm 138:8. It says this: "The Lord will perfect His plan concerning me." Not tremendous? He will perfect His plan concerning me. Psalm 37.23 says this, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. A step at a time. He's in command. He's in charge. He has a plan. He's working it out. And things happen. Cars break down. Who knows? All kinds of things can happen. Our response to those circumstances is what discouragement is. But we don't have to be discouraged. That can be an encumbrance. It can be a hindrance. And the enemy is quick to take advantage of that and to accuse us because he knows that he can incapacitate us spiritually if he can discourage us deeply enough. And we don't run the race. We stop short. We lose heart. Get rid of these encumbrances. Listen. In shady green pastures so rich and so sweet, God leads his dear children along. Where the water's cool flow bathes the weary one's feet, God leads his dear children along. Some through the water, some three through the flood, some to the fire, but all through the blood, some through great sorrow, but God gives a song in the night season and all the day long sometimes. On the mount where the sun shines so bright, God leads his dear children along. Sometimes in the valley, in darkest of night, God leads his dear children along. Some through the water some through the flood, some through the fire, but all through the blood. Some through great sorrow, but God gives a song in the night season and all the day long. See, he knows every circumstance. We don't have to be discouraged. Put aside every encumbrance and every sin. Now, let's look at that briefly. The matter of sin. You know, one of the things that concerns me about so much of the teaching that we get in general in the evangelical church is we hear very, very little about the holiness and the righteousness of God. We, we like to hear that He's a, He's a Father that will bless us, encourage us, keep us. God is a God of righteousness. Don't ever forget that. And if we are going to be related to Him properly and fellowship with Him as He desires, it must be in righteousness. And that means dealing with sin. In my life. And it's interesting the way this says here, in this passage. It's the sin that easily entangles us. Now I believe that, I believe that's a very personal thing. I believe that there are specific individual sins that entangle some people more than others. Obviously there are sins that we all struggle with, but there are but because of the way we're made up, because of 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 who we are, there are certain things that that cause some of us more trouble than other things that are sin. And we need to recognise that. We need to ask God, as David did, search me, O God, and know my heart, try me and know my thoughts, and see if there's any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Cleanse me, Lord, of whatever sin there might be. Point it out to me. Now, what happens when the Spirit of God points it out? We can do one of three things. We can rationalize. And we can say, well, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's something that I ought to take care of. But, you know, right now I'm dealing with so many other things I... I don't think I can handle that. Or we can rationalize by saying, well yes Lord, I I did upset, I did get upset and I did get angry, but you know how that person treated me. You know, and we can rationalize sin. Then there's a second way we can deal with sin. We can excuse it. We can just excuse it. We can excuse it by saying, well yeah, but Man, it's not as bad as a lot of people I know. Yeah, I I use some language that I shouldn't, but man, it's nothing like my boss at work. You know, we can excuse it in a variety of ways. We can say, well, yeah, but you see, I was I was born in a in a home that I didn't learn what love was, and I didn't, and on and on and on, and we can keep going back to that and excusing our personal behavior presently. You can never excuse present behavior on the basis of past experience. That's a psychological lie. You deal with it. It's sin. And God says, put it aside. That sin that entangles you and keeps you from moving ahead as God desires. Now James 5:16 says this. Confess your sin to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. You see, you can't you can't begin the healing process until you're willing to confess. That's just the way God has ordained it. Now, nobody can make you do that. Nobody can force you. I mean, even if they come and point something out to you, they can't force you to admit it or confess it. That's something that each of us has to choose to do, to confess. And the scripture says there in that book, in that chapter in James, when we do that, the healing process begins. God wants to heal us of some of those things, but until we're willing to admit them, he can't start. Confess your sins and pray for one another that you might be healed. So, the writer tells us we've got to deal with encumbrances, and they're personal, or individual, and we've got to deal with sin, and that's personal and individual, if we're going to run the race. If we're going to be involved in what God has for you and for me. And notice the last phrase of this first verse. It says, the race that is set before us. Now again, I think there's a race that all believers are asked to run. But I also believe there is a specific race that He has for you and for me. It's, it's specific. And it's based on who we are, it's based on what he wants us to do, it's based on what gift he may have given us, whatever he asks us to do. That's the race. That's my race. And that's all I have to be concerned about, is my race, not yours. I can pray for you, and I can demonstrate love, and I can encourage you, but I have to be committed and concerned About the race that he has set before me. Lord, Paul said when he had that experience on the road to Damascus, remember? The first question he asked was, who are you? And Jesus identified himself. And then the next question was, what do you want me to do? Now that's the question we have to ask. What do you want me to do? It's very personal, very specific. What race is it that you have for me in order to do what you want me to do? Now, one last thought here before we move on to the final point that I want to make tonight. In running the race, because we are human, we are going to fail. We fail. It isn't a pleasant thing to admit and experience, but it's just, It's true. We do. We fail. I remember a number of failures in my life, but one in particular that I want to share with you. I I grew up in a home that uh, was not a Bible-believing home until I was about 14 years of age. And so there were some... There were some things that mom and dad didn't really understand. They began to understand them as they grew up in in the Lord. But one of those had to do with my temper. I had a temper. And, uh, And they never dealt with me about that. Now, one of the reasons, I think, is my dad had a temper. I don't think he ever learned to deal with it. So he didn't quite know how to handle me. I grew up with that. And it wasn't a, it wasn't a violent kind, except on the, on the football field, it, it did get that way. And, and on the basketball court, I played four years of college basketball, and I remember on more than one occasion losing my temper on the basketball court. And I'm, I'm not proud of that. I'm simply saying that was something that, that was happening to me. I got married. And Florine, some of you have met her. She's sitting over here. Florine is a little five feet. Five feet, half an inch, something like that. And uh, my temper went with me into the marriage. Now, I didn't, I didn't, um, I was never violent. I never was physical in any way. But I was nasty and sarcastic in the way I spoke. See, temper demonstrates itself in, a lot of, itself in a lot of ways. And we'd have a conflict, and I'd make my statement, <clears throat> turn around and walk away, and leave her standing there. Now, I know nobody else has that problem, but I, I had it. Okay? And this went on. And the thing was, by that time, I was, I was seeking to honor the Lord. I really was. But for some reason, I had never really identified that as something I needed to deal with. I just figured that was the way I was. And I would come back to Florine very quickly, within minutes, most of the time, and apologize. And tell her I was sorry for what I had said. And bless her heart, she would very graciously forgive me and say she understood. And we would be reconciled and go on. This went on. We were missionaries in Quito, Ecuador. And one day this happened. And I stomped out like I did. But within minutes I was back. She was still standing in the very same place. I could take you to the house and show you the place on the floor where she was standing. When really you could. And I came back to her and I said, Sweetheart, I, I'm sorry. I... I shouldn't have said what I did. I, I, I really am sorry. And she pulled herself up to her full five foot, half an inch and looked up at me and she said, I don't believe you. Now that was the first time she had done that. I couldn't understand it. I had just told her I was sorry. And she said she didn't believe me. And I told her, I said, but I just told you I'm sorry. She says, I know, I heard you. But if you were really sorry, you would do something to change. Now, folks, I want to tell you something. That's what I needed to hear. Because I got before the Lord and dealt with that, and God started to change me. There are failures. We have failures. What do we do with them when we fail? What do I do? What did I do then? I could have gotten very discouraged. I was a, I was a missionary in South America at that time. I'd been there for three and a half years. I'd been a pastor before going down. I'd been traveling in international evangelism, holding crusades in different places. And all of a sudden, here I am having to face this, this habit, this character flaw. And the enemy likes to take advantage of that. What do we do? Well, let me remind you of the little story in John 21. Peter and Jesus are talking, remember? And Peter asked Jesus, do you love me? Remember that? And Peter couldn't answer with the same word that Jesus used. And so he answered, but he said, Lord, I like you. That's what the, that's the meaning of the word. And again Jesus said, do you love me? And again Peter said, I like you. But the interesting thing to note is this. Three times Jesus asked him, three times he got that answer. Why do you suppose Peter answered that way? Because just a few hours before, he had denied the Lord Jesus three times. That little lady came up and she said, ah, oh, I've seen you. You with them. You're one of them. Oh, no, I'm not. No, don't know them. Have, don't have anything to do with them. Big old blustery Peter. This little gal scared him. And he denied the Lord three times. And now Jesus is saying, do you love me? And Peter couldn't say it. Why? Because he felt like such a failure. And Jesus, three times, says, Peter, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. I'm still counting on you. And the commission that I gave you hasn't changed. I want you to feed my lambs. I want you to feed my sheep. I want you to tend my lambs. Three times he told him. I'm restoring you to the ministry that I gave you. Nothing has changed. And that's what Jesus does for you and for me when we fail in this race. And we will. While we're trying to get rid of these encumbrances, while we're trying to deal with the sin, we'll fail. But by God's grace, if we're willing to admit and confess, the healing process starts and he restores us. That's his promise. Now let's finish, let's finish with the last two verses that we want to look at, verses two and three. And here I think we have the motivation for endurance. What is going to keep us running this race? What is going to keep me going when others aren't willing to? When situations get uncomfortable when when discouragement starts to come, what's going to keep me going? Notice what he says fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of faith fixing our eyes on Jesus. do you remember when that situation when Peter it's in Matthew fourteen they were they were in the boat and jesus came walking on the water remember and and peter said lord if it's really you bid me walk to you jesus said fine come ahead peter climbed out of the boat put his foot in the water Put the other foot in the water and he didn't sink. I I, I mean, he was staggered. But, he started to walk toward Jesus. Walking on the water. And then, then, he saw the waves. And he got scared. And he started to sink. And he said, Lord, help me! And Jesus, of course, reached over and, and pulled him up. What happened? He took his eyes off of Jesus and put them on the waves. You see, that's what happens when we fail to keep our eyes on Jesus and look at the circumstances or look at people or look at ourselves and, 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 and the miserable life that we have sometimes. All of those things can cause us discouragement, can cause us to, to keep from running the race the way God wants us to. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. One of the things that I have found, and I think I may have shared this one of the first times I spoke, in my counseling, I've done counseling for about 30 years, and in my counseling, I have found that usually... In probably 90% now, that's a large percentage, but I think, I've, I think I've observed this. Probably 90% of the difficulties that I try to help people with regarding something they're struggling with is because they have a very poor understanding of who God is. And because they don't really understand who God is and what he promises and that he is involved with them and what he wants to do for them, they get discouraged and they get focused in on their, quote, need, unquote. And they take their eyes off of Jesus. Hebrews 11.6 says this, Without faith... It is impossible to please him. For whoever comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Now let me paraphrase that, if I may, without doing violence to the text. If we want to have fellowship with God, there are two things that are absolutely indispensable. All right, and they are these to believe that God is who he claims to be, and two, that he will do what he promised to do. There they are. Two things that are absolutely basic. That's the foundation of my ability to run the race to believe that God is who He claims to be and that He will do what He promised to do. I can run the race because of who He is. Not because of my strength or because how much time I spend studying the Scriptures or because how much experience I've had or how long I've known the Lord or whatever. I can run the race because God is who He claims to be and He will do what He promised to do but I have to keep my eyes on him I have to keep going to the scriptures to see what does it say about God who is he for example this tremendous verse in numbers 2319 it says god is not a man that he should lie nor the son of man that he should repent has he said and will he not do it and has he spoken and will he not make it good that's who God is. That's who God is. Or take the verse in Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for your welfare and not for calamity. To give you a future and a hope. That's what he says he'll do. Who he is and what he will do. And that's why Paul writes in Romans 15, 13, now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, in believing that he is who he claims to be and that he'll do what he promised to do. That he, that, that he will fill you with joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how we run the race. We run the race in the hope of of what God has promised and who he is. That's what keeps us going. That's why the writer says, fixing your eyes on Jesus. That's the goal. This is the race. But I'm not concerned about the race so much. As long as I keep my eyes on Jesus... And I keep going toward him. That's what he's asked me to do. Jesus said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me. In John 7.37 it says, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. See, he is the the only one who can do that for us. He's the only one who can meet those needs. And if we're going to run the race, it's going to be as we fix our eyes on him. Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. That's what Paul said in that passage we read back there. Don't lose heart. The key, and with this we'll finish, Hebrews 4. Let us, therefore, draw near with confidence... To the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Father, you've given us this very clear word. You've called us to a race. Each one of us has our own course to run. You've promised to give us the grace we need to run that race. The strength that we need. And more than that, at the end of the race, you've put your son, the Lord Jesus. And there he is, in all his loveliness. And you tell us, fix your eyes on him. Lord God in heaven, tonight I pray that you would help us to understand this. And Father, there, there may be some people here who, who don't understand how, how this can happen because they're not running the race yet. They haven't gotten into the race. They haven't come to a place of realizing their need for the Lord Jesus to forgive and to cleanse them of their sin. And to make them members of your family and, and to put them in the race. And Lord, I ask that you would speak to them tonight and give them a desire to want to run the race for your glory, to give their lives to you, to use in whatever way you want. And if there are those, Father, I just ask that you would help them tonight to come up and talk with one of the men and ask whatever questions they need of some of the elders or some of the counselors that will be up here. And then, Father, I pray for the others, all of us who are followers of yours, who have come to, to receive Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. Recognizing that we are so imperfect, we run the race so poorly, we fail so frequently, but we thank you for your forgiveness, we thank you for restoring us, And I do pray that you would renew our determination to run the race in a way that will honor you and glorify you. Thank you, Father, for all of your promises to help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.